Welcome to the Focus Church Teachings Podcast. We hope this brings a lot of encouragement to you, but we also want you to know that we believe discipleship doesn't occur here, but occurs in small groups where people share their gifts with each other in many-to-many discipleship. If you want to know more about that, stick around after the teaching. So tonight, we're going to talk uh, about the playlist. And this is why I mentioned our technical difficulties. Not just to get your sympathy or to explain why you're looking at a screen today instead of at a projection, but because whenever I teach on something, God has a way of giving me reminders of it as I'm going to teach on. But it's true. Here I am teaching on the perfect plan of God. The plan that is, is it, it's like, as we're going to see tonight, it's it, think about your favorite heist movies, right? Your, your favorite movies where you have a planner. I used to watch, this will tell you I'm an 80s child. When I was growing up, I watched the A-T. Are there any other 80s children in here? Yeah, I saw the smiles already. Terrible show, but it made us all smile. I don't know what to say about it. Um, I don't know this terrible show. I haven't rewatched it, but recently, because of streaming, I've been able to go back and rewatch some of my favorite 80s shows. None of them are quite as good as I thought they were. Um, I got to say, uh, MacGyver was like a favorite, and I couldn't get past the first half of the season of rewatching the original MacGyver. It's terrible. Um, I don't know what happened. Uh, uh, so, you know, it's just, so the A-Team, I suspect, is not a great show. But what it was about was it was kind of a Mission Impossible kind of show where this team of people, the so-called A-Team, although part of the joke was, what well, were they really? But this, this, this so-called A-Team that would do these impossible things. And one of the lines that the leader always used to say, he always had these very convoluted plans. So convoluted that, in fact, in the middle of the show, when he revealed it was his plan, usually you were like, really? Was that really your plan? Because how could you have ever made that happen this way? But, but, he'd always, but he'd always say this. This was a line, which is a quotable line from this ABC TV show. He'd always say, I love it when a plan comes together. I saw, I saw the 80s people out there quoting it, as I said. So I love it when a plan comes together. And, and think of your favorite movies or the A-team or whatever it is where there's a planner. And it's, it's just exciting watching the plan unfold and happen. And even when there are wrinkles, you know, you see that, oh, they actually had accommodated for that and it came out perfectly. And so, the, you know, in the heist movies, the bad guys are the good guys. We know that's how that works. And they always win at the end. So here I am about to teach about the perfect plan of God, which is like that, except he's definitely the good guy, and, and he never fails, and his plan just goes across everything, and nothing throws him, and it's just this perfect, everything goes according to plan, and so of course tonight, nothing went according to plan. Not a single thing. I mean, we, we, like I say, we got here a little bit late, and then the projector, for reasons I still do not know, just decided not to work. Um, now it's, you know, maybe it's just past its time, we'll see, but, but it decided not to work, and then you know, I almost forget getting the microphones hooked up. My piece of my tripod is those of you who came in here within the last two minutes. I was running around looking for it because it was in the car. These things have never happened before. And yet nothing was quite what it should have been. And it is just a reminder from God that, again, even in his ability to plan, he is holy. <laughs> he is perfect. He is complete. His plans are never flawed. His plans are never in error. His plans never go awry. But ours frequently do. There's lots of proverbs which say that, right? That the, the plans of, of man, uh, uh, God, man makes his plans, but God directs the steps. Or in common vernacular, people say, <laughs> man makes plans and God laughs. <laughs> yeah. So we're going to talk about the plan, though, tonight about God. And, and that, you know, I, I want to give you an idea of what it is. We're going to talk about, obviously, the details as we begin to talk about the gospel next week, which is 
you know, you may say, why didn't we just start with the gospel? Because it is the essence of everything that Christianity is about. But the gospel doesn't make sense unless you understand the nature of God and the fallenness of man and the, and the promises of God and even the plan. And I think to understand the plan will add some richness to the gospel. So we're going to start with the plan. I don't think it'll take us very long tonight because it is, in its essence, as it's, it's on one hand, very simple. And on the other hand, too complex for us to understand anyway. So there's only so far we can go. But here's what I want to, I want to pick up where we left off last week. We actually, as we were talking about the promise of God, uh, we looked at Hebrews 11.39. And, and we talked about how all these people are commended in Scripture for their faith, because they believed in the promise of God. And the author of Hebrews wraps it up this way. He says, these were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised. God had planned something better for us that only together with us would they be made perfect. Right off the bat, in this, this verse, the reason I wanted to start here, it connects the plan and the promise. Again, the promise is God told us what he, you know, what he, he gave us something to count on and look to, but this promise itself comes from a plan. But what a weird and amazing way to describe the plan here, the author of Hebrews does. It's it's really audacious. In fact, it's almost hard for us to. If, if I wasn't reading it from scripture, it'd be hard to articulate it this way because it sounds kind of narcissistic and arrogant on our behalf, doesn't it? To say that God planned something better for us and he made all those heroes of the Old Testament wait so that they could be perfected with us. Somehow this statement makes us really important and it's, it's really complicated to understand how we can be so important to the plan and what does that mean? Does it mean we're the center of the universe? clearly doesn't. If you've been hanging out with us for a while, you know I'm not going to say that. But it is an amazing statement to say that in God's plans, he looked ahead to, at the time Paul is writing the people he's speaking to, but I think you can extrapolate this forward to us too. Everybody who's part of this plan, he tells us this plan is huge, and it involves all of us both individually and corporately. Somehow, he has to wait for every single individual, but he also wants it to happen for all of us. So there's something about this plan which is a little bit too centered on us to be comfortable and, 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 and makes it hard for us sometimes to grasp the full weight of it. And I say that, but when most of us heard the gospel or began to hear the plan of God, didn't we only understand it in a personal way? I mean, I really don't, I don't know. I've known a lot of people who've come to receive the Lord and been saved, and I literally do not know a single individual. You may be one, I'm not saying this is impossible. But I do not personally know a single individual who said, my testimony is that I came to the Lord because I wanted to glorify him. No. Most people say, I came to the Lord because of what I needed. And what's fascinating is God doesn't seem to have a problem. So how does that fit in his plan? How can it be so personal, even so narcissistic, if he's calling us to something bigger? So we're going to look at that. We're going to look at primarily a, a, a chunk, a passage. As soon as it comes up on the screen, your eyes are going to glaze over because it's a bunch of words that fill up the whole screen. Okay? It's there, so you can read along if you want. You can pull it up in your own Bible if you want, or you can just listen. I don't care. I happen to be actually really an audible person. I do better when I hear people read anyway. So if you're like that, you don't have, you can you can let your eyes glaze over and ignore this if you <laughs> But this is what he says, and I want you to, as, you, as I read this first, before we get lost in the weeds, let's take a, a big picture back. And what I want you to do as I read this 
is I want you to, I just want you to note all the words in this passage, how many times there's a word which speaks of plan or purpose or will or something like that, all right? I just want you to get a sense of how much of this passage is about that. So just kind of note all the times that there's a word that says something like that. So here we go. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. And in him, we also were chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. Even words, even phrases like purpose of his will sound a little redundant, don't they? The will of his will, the will of his purpose, the purpose of his purpose, the purpose of his will. Doesn't that all mean the same thing? <laughs> yeah, it kind of does. It's a really clear passage that God has a plan. The things didn't happen accidentally. Now, I want to take a moment and remind you we're talking about foundations, and there are some words in here which are triggers for some people. Predestination uh, and chose. For some people, these become triggers to either defend or argue with the Calvinists. And I want you to know, as and, and it feels funny to have to say this, but you know, we've talked about how we have all sorts of political persuasions in our group. We have people who are pro-life and pro-choice. That feels edgy to say that. I have a lot of pastor friends who are like, should you even say that? Well, here's another one. This will only feel edgy to those in certain camps. Calvinists are welcome in our church. <laughs> and those who are not Calvinists are welcome in our church also. Because there are some strong convictions about that. And when it comes to terms like predestination and chose, that's where we get into wrinkles. I want to point out, Scripture clearly uses words like chose and predestination. I didn't make these up. But how you exactly work all that out can differ. And guess what? As we talk about foundation, we're not going to talk about all those possible differences. If you want to explore that in your groups, that's great. Tell your focus group leader, I'd like to do a study on Calvinism. And I'll create a study if your leader in the rescue group wants to do that. A <laughs> bunch of groups are like, nope, no, no one did. The leader said, I told my group I'm not doing it. Not that one. <laughs> no, it's fine to explore it. The truth is, most of us do agree with at least some of the tenets of God. It's just a question of five point, four point, three point, or two point. I don't know any one point Calvinist. That would be all. Anyway, bottom line is the idea, though, of intention, the idea of predestination and choosing shows intention, doesn't it? Whatever it means, however it plays out, it shows that God chose people. And we see this even with Jesus and the apostles. One of the things that's unusual about Jesus's ministry is there were other rabbis were not quite official, an official thing yet. That happens a little bit after Jesus. But nonetheless, there was sort of this rabbinical teaching approach to things. So people use the word rabbi as teacher, even in the Gospels. And there was this rabbinical approach to teaching. But what happened is that people would go find their the person they wanted to be discipled by. They would choose him. And then he would say, are you worthy? And they would have to prove themselves worthy of being his disciple. And one of the things that's unusual about Jesus is that's not how he collected his disciples. He went to them. He chose them. And he chose people that were probably 
rejected by other teachers, to be honest. <laughs> he chose the sometimes the less educated. And he chose, speaking of diversity, he chose a, a diverse group of, of disciples who, I don't know why they didn't kill each other. Because they were very, very different. So we see that even in Jesus, that there's an intention, there's a plan, there's a choosing. And so however you work it all out, we see those words. But, but let's go back. I'd ask you to kind of pay attention to how many times something about intention and purpose and will shows up. So I've colored those here, a nice bright pink for you. And look at how much of this passage is just reiterated with those words over and over. He chose us in him. He predestined us for his pleasure and his will. Uh, with to, to make, He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ. I love that one sentence. He's just like, God wanted to do something and he wanted to do it and he wanted to do it. That's really what those three phrases say. I mean, really, doesn't it? He, a mystery of his will. What's your will? It's what you want to do. According to his good pleasure. What's that? It's what you want to do. Which he purposed. What does that mean? It's the purpose. It's what you want to do. That, that whole sentence just says, with all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us what he wanted to do and what he wanted to do and what he wanted to do. <laughs> Paul just really wants to be clear. God was not forced into a situation. Things didn't happen accidentally and coincidentally. Today, there is some struggle with this. It is understandably hard for us to understand a God who's in complete control of his own plans. And it's hard for us to understand how the bad things that happen in our life fit in with those plans. But that's not new. That's a struggle that Job had. That's a struggle that Habakkuk had. That's a struggle that Nicodemus had. That's a struggle that Peter had. That's a struggle everyone in Scripture has. But why do they all have that struggle? Because they believe that's true. It's not a struggle if they don't believe God's in control. It's only a struggle because they believe God's in control. And Paul is just reiterating that. There, there is a, a theory out there among Christians, and I, I even wrestled with putting this in foundations because I do think you can be a believer and be confused about this. There are some Christians out there who say that what really happened is that Jesus came to earth and it didn't unfold the way God wanted it to, and so he kind of had to adapt and adjust. And after they killed Jesus, he had to make that work on our behalf. Yeah, I see some head shaking. Well, I did decide to put this in the foundations because I think it is important to understand God was not surprised that he had a plan. He works the plan out. And according to this passage, there's a lot of things we see about the plan. We'll walk through these a little bit, but let me just share a couple of things we see in this passage. Number one, we see the plan was intentional, that there were choices even made about us. Again, how weird that this plan, from before the creation of the world, it says. How bizarre is it? Unless you are totally narcissistic already, it, it should blow your mind at least a little bit to think that before the creation of the world, there's at least some capacity in which you were on God's mind. Whether you think of it corporately or individually, nonetheless, he was choosing you before the creation of the world. Now, maybe he chose you because of your faith, maybe he chose you in spite of that. That's the whole Calvinist question. Don't care. Chose you one way or the other. The plan was something God wanted for the pleasure of his own will. It says pleasure a lot. Talks a lot. He does it for his pleasure. It's an interesting word. It's not that much different from will or purpose, but it does have a, a little of an emotional sense to it, doesn't it? That he really is there. He's doing these things uh, for his pleasure. And one of my kids is laughing at me because I say the word pleasure. Funny. I saw you guys. I don't even notice anymore. The plan fulfills a purpose. Okay, we'll go on. The plan somehow involved us being holy and blameless. He says he our adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ. He says that we would... Before the creation of the world, he chose us to be holy and blameless. 
These are, these are crazy thoughts. The plan involves us being adopted by God. The plan reveals God's glory in his grace. It says here, it says that, that uh, to the praise of his glorious grace, the thing about God's grace is his glory. Goes on and says that what does he do with this grace? Does he just give it to us a little bit? Does he just eke it out? No, it says the riches of God's grace are lavished on us. Somehow the plan involves redemption, forgiveness, and all of this is, is has to do with the riches of God's grace being lavished on us. So let's let's step back now that we see that there's a plan. It's definite. It's intentional. It's been from before the creation of the world. It's still unfolding at the time that Paul's writing. Still unfolding today, by the way. It's this huge, huge plan. Let's take a, another look a little bit. He goes on. He says this in the same passages. He says, in him we also were chosen, is where we left off, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we who were the first to put our hope in Christ might be for the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. So I know there's a lot of words here, but hang with me that you see he continues to say here that we're chosen, that predestined, that there's a plan that is working, worked out in conformity with the purpose of his will. That phrase, purpose of his will, still gets me, the will of his will, the reason for his will. In order that we who were first to put our hope in Christ might be for the praise of his glory. Paul there may be talking specifically about the apostles, saying we were the first to hope in his glory. Paul is saying we were part of that plan. In the conformity of his will, we needed to be first. That's a crazy thing to say. But then he goes on. He says, you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of the truth. You also are part of that. And this is where it definitely extrapolates to us. Every believer, every person who has heard the message of truth, the gospel of the good news of their salvation and believed has been marked with a seal. And that is part of the plan of God. There's not a single person who receives the Lord that isn't part of truly, let me just say that simpler. There's not a single person who isn't in the plan of God. And he says twice within this passage, something that he said earlier for the praise of his glory. Something about this plan leads to the praise of his glory. So let's break it down just a little bit. That doesn't mean I'm going to break down. Sounded like a good Break down. Number one, the purpose of this plan is to bring all things in unity under Christ. I don't know if you saw that, but back in that first verse, he says this: "In Him we were also chosen." No, 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 that's not it. He made known to us the mystery of His will. So you should be at this moment in the sentence saying, "What is the mystery of His will? What is His will?" The mystery of his will, according to he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment. And then he tells us what it is. What is the mystery of his will? What is the purpose that's going to be put into effect? To bring unity to all things in heaven and earth under Christ. So the purpose of the plan, the gospel, this thing from the beginning, the purpose is to bring all things in unity under Christ. Christ. 
You just go back and forth. It's yeah. Oh, it loaded. Sorry. Okay, no problem. The purpose is to bring all things in unity under Christ. This is the grand cosmic plan. This is when we're reminded that the plan isn't, you aren't the center of the universe. <laughs> the purpose of this plan, this thing we understand is the gospel. It doesn't really begin with you. It begins with Christ. Now, he's included you somehow, and we'll get to that. But the purpose is to bring all things in unity under Christ. Think back to the beginning when he created the world and everything was good and everything was perfect. And Adam and Eve were to walk in faith. We talked about that. The goal was not for them to know what was right and wrong. It was for them to be united with God, to walk in obedience and faith with him. And the whole universe would follow the example of, of mankind as they followed God. We were the image of God. We were the representation which was supposed to help the whole world follow in unity. And what happened at the curse, what happened at the fall, as Adam and Eve, the representations of God to the world, as they broke from that, they led the entire universe with them. And now everything is literally disintegrated. There's no integration under one thing. There's no unity under one leader, right? Just take our little slice of the world here in America. Very hard for us to unite under one leader, isn't it? <laughs> Imagine the whole world uniting under one leader. Imagining every plant and species and animal and creature and nature and humans all being integrated under one majestic, mighty, benevolent God. Why do so many things in the world seem awry? Why does it seem disintegrated? Why do things not make sense? Natural events, unnatural events, man-made events, none of it quite makes sense to us. It all seems without purpose and plan. Why? Because it's not integrated in unity under Christ. And the goal is that someday everything will be fixed. But let's be clear, what fixed means is that everything will be in unity under submission to Jesus. Now, if you're not a believer, that might not sound great. But that is part of the, the difficulty. That is part of the hindrance for some people accepting the gospel is accepting the reality that you are not God. You are not king. And you are not the center. It is a huge cosmic plan in which everything will come back in unity, working together, functioning as it's supposed to. Things will make sense. There will be purpose. The entire universe will be redeemed. That's the purpose. That's the big cosmic plan. But here's where it gets really strange. According to these verses in Ephesians, the way God implements this plan is not what you would have guessed. Here he is, the great plan maker, the great heist organizer. And you know, always at the beginning of those heist movies, the guy gives a plan and people are like, that's a dumb plan. Right? Because they don't understand how brilliant he is. Because in the heist movie, he is. Let's just be honest. He's so brilliant, he predicts things that no one's ever predict. But that's how it works in a heist movie. Well, God's the same way, except he actually can predict things nobody could ever predict. And the way he chooses to implement this plan, even as we hear it now, you'll go, I'm not sure I see the connection. Because this is what it says. The, implement the implementation of this plan is God heaping grace upon you and me. Now, now again, you may say, I don't know how you get from A to B, that, but it does tell us that. We'll talk about that a little bit more. And when we get to the church, which is also foundational, we'll talk even more. But understand that what Ephesians says is the goal, the purpose, the mystery of his will 
is that everything will be under unity to Christ. But the way that he says this happens is that God lavishes his grace upon us. And suddenly this grand cosmic plan, which seems to have nothing to do with you, suddenly we become essential, central components of this plan. And that kind of twists our mind around. The implementation of this plan is God heaping grace upon us. He goes on to tell us the result of his heaping grace upon us is our adoption and transformation. The result is that we belong to God, we've been part of God's family, and we become changed. We become new creatures. We become redeemed. We become forgiven. There's a lot of ways to describe what happens, but it's a deep and real transformation. And we belong to God. Now, if you start thinking about it, you might begin to be able to see some connections because what he's saying is the path to everything being united under Christ begins with uniting who? Us. Under who? Christ. And in order to do that, he adopts us. He actually makes us his children. And I think the term adoption is good in a lot of ways. But one to the choice and the intentionality, right? None of us are accident. But it also speaks to when God adopts us, it's it's an unusual adoption because there's a genetic component in that. We are transformed. We become not like his slaves or his servants or even just his disciples. We become his children. We become like So the purpose of his plan is to bring all things in unity under Christ. The implementation is to heap grace upon us. We're going to talk about grace and give you a definition for that. But for now, just one way to think of it is the way that God's grace is described is it's, it's his love for us. That's part of it. His complete, holy, perfect love, which was uninfluenced by you. You cannot make him love you any less. And you don't need to make him love you anymore because his love is complete and infinite. But it's also his power. Grace is spoken of in scripture a lot as his power. So one way to think of it is that grace is his desire and his ability to do good to you. And so he heaps this on us, lavishes it upon us. And that is somehow going to lead to the unity of all things under Christ. And part of it is that it begins the unity of, of bringing us into adoption and transformation. And the long-term impact of this plan is praise for God's glorious grace. Now, I want to say something really quickly, because there's this argument, which is a... I was going to uncharitably say a dumb argument. I shouldn't say it, because people make it in all earnestness. But there is this argument, which is an unnecessary argument. Let's say it that way. It's not dumb, but it's an unnecessary argument for people to make. And it's this argument about whether God is motivated more by his love for us or by his desire for glory. And the reason this argument comes up is because scripture says both. It says that he does things to glorify himself, but it also says he does things because he loves us. But here's why the argument is unnecessary. So what we don't understand about God's glory, which Paul makes very clear here in Ephesians. Part of God's glory is that he's the kind of God that loves us as much as he does. That's what makes him glorious. It's his glorious grace. So to say, is God motivated by wanting himself to be glorified or by wanting to love us? The answer is yes. He wants people to glorify him as they recognize what a gracious God he is. In reality, not in appearance, right? It's one thing to say, I want people to praise me because I'm so nice. No, God actually is glorious. He actually loves us. And it is this, and so what happens is, as the whole universe sees this, this, this plan where we're adopted and transformed and they see the power of God's grace and they see the love of God for us, somehow 
that leads to more and more praise of this glorious grace for him, not just from us, but, but God seems to indicate from the universe itself, both spiritual forces and physical ones. I know it's a little metaphorical. I'm not trying to get weird on you, but, but God speaks frequently about the, 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 the whole universe being united. One of my favorite prophets is a weird one. It's a bad prophet. Why, if he wrote the book, he acknowledges he's a bad prophet. It's Jonah. If he didn't write the book, whoever wrote it is acknowledging he's a bad prophet. So Jonah is a bad prophet because he doesn't do what God tells him to do. That's the long and short of it. What's fascinating about the book of Jonah is in the first three chapters, the, the author makes a point of pointing out how everything in the universe obeys God except Jonah. He talks about how the winds come on the boat. And then he talks about how the heathens on the boat start asking Jonah what God would have them do. And Jonah says, he probably should throw me overboard. And they do. They're obeying God. And they're not even following God. And then the fish swallows Jonah because he's obeying God. And then the fish spits out Jonah because he's obeying God. And then when Jonah goes to do what God asked him to do, which he didn't want to do, which was to preach to the Ninevites, guess what? They obey God. It's really amazing. The whole book is like, Jonah is so bad because everybody else obeys God and Jonah doesn't. It's like the entire rest of the world is united and Jonah's not. But it is kind of a picture of as God gets us back where we belong, united in submission to Christ, it's, it's as if it, it leaves room for the rest of the universe to then pull in behind it. And it all is for the glorious praise of God. But it's not like God's glory and his love are at odds with each other. He is glorious because of who he is. And who he is is this God that loves us so much that before he even created us, he made this plan. Here's the thing I want you to think about. You, you know where this is going. You know the gospel includes the death of Jesus on the cross. And I want you to recognize that God had this plan for that to happen before he even created the universe. He knew he would create the universe and it would go awry. He knew the curse would come. And he knew that the only way out of that was going to be for him to die on the cross to make up for that, to suffer. And yet, for whatever reason, it was worth it to him to create us and go through all that, to have this relationship with us. But that plan was from before the creation. Paul says this about the universe, just so you know, I'm not kind of just waxing poetic. He says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Paul says, we, as those believers, God is revealing his glorious grace in us. As we are matured, as we are brought in unity under Jesus, as we are transformed, as we are sanctified, he says, that glory that's revealed in us is going to be amazing. And the troubles, the very real troubles, you always have to remember when Paul seems to make light of suffering, you do have to remember he is not someone unaccustomed to suffering. And very often when he's talking about it, he is in the midst of being beaten and in prison. <clears throat> and, you know, it's easy to think of Paul being in prison and maybe it's not a big deal, but he was beaten regularly. And one of my, there's there's a movie out there, if you've never seen it, it's called Paul the Apostle. Jim Caviezel plays Luke in it. I don't remember who plays Paul. But one of the things that really struck out to me about that, stuck out to me about that movie, was that the guy who plays Paul in that never stands up straight the entire movie. He plays Paul bent over as if he cannot stand up. It's excruciating to watch. You actually feel like the guy is in constant pain. And then I realized that the era in which that movie takes place, he probably was. So for him to say things like this, it's not someone who doesn't understand what it means to suffer, and he's just saying, suck it up. 
He says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. This is crazy. In the same way that the Israelites waited for the Messiah to come and just pinned everything on that, Paul makes it sound like the creation itself is waiting for you and me to be revealed as the adopted, transformed children of God. How weird that we are suddenly such a significant part of this plan. He says, for the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. Listen to the sentence again. It's not entirely clear who Paul means, but either way is astounding. He says, for the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it. Now, that could mean God, because ultimately God's in control, but it could mean us. Who subjected the world to the fall, to the curse? Adam and Eve. <laughs> it was their will that caused it to happen. And so he's saying the universe, you know, we, in a sense, if you accept the, 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 the representative responsibility we all have, and that's a whole other discussion, but, but in a sense, you know, we are to blame for the state of the world the curse and the fall and the sin, at least Adam and Eve are. And I think if you just look at our own lives, it's easy to see we all would be in the same boat. But the universe didn't do it. The lions and the tigers and the bears, oh my, had nothing to do with the curse and the fall. It's not their fault. The entropy that now sits upon the universe, it's not its fault. And I think that's what he's saying. The creation was subjected to frustration. It never gets to be what it should be. But it wasn't even its own choice. But by the will of one, it subjected it. But it goes on to say, but they have the hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into freedom and glory of the children of God. It's like, as Paul said earlier, we're the first fruits. We're the hint. We're the taste. We're the hope that the whole universe has. They can look at what God has done in us. And it gives them hope about what can happen to the universe. Now, again, this is somewhat metaphorical. I don't actually think that your dogs and your cats at home are like looking at you and saying, come on, be a child of God. I, I, but, but I do think there is this sense. <laughs> I do think there is this sense that the creation is frustrated. Is, is a, it, we, we look at it, we recognize it just never, the world doesn't make sense. It isn't quite what it should be. And Paul says elsewhere, it's like it's like birthing pains, waiting for us to be born. There is a tension in this, and I want you to see this in the plan, because I think understanding this tension is true. A lot of times what we do with tension is we try to erase it. We just try to make it make sense. And a lot of times that doesn't work. Because <laughs> and this is one of those moments. We look at the plan of God, and we want to say either... There's, there's sort of two ways we can approach the world. I am worthless. I don't matter to anybody, and nothing I do matters, and, and I'm, I'm, I'm never going to be enough. That's one way to approach the world. The other is to say, I am the only thing that matters. I am the center of the universe, and, and as soon as you leave the room, you are not unimportant anymore. <laughs> you know, at a certain age, that's actually where kids are. They think that people who leave the room don't exist. But at all ages, we all do that a little bit. <laughs> We're like surprised that things happen to other people. Like, oh yeah, I guess you have your own life, don't you? Yeah. 
outside of mind. So we go either direction. We're the center or we're nothing. And, and, and it's easier to pick one of those. And to be honest, a lot of us waffle between them, depending on how we feel about ourselves. But here's the tension of this plan, the glorious truth. Number one, the plan is cosmic and includes everything. And as a result of that, we are very small, infinitesimally small. Some of you have had that feeling. If, you, if you've seen any of the, the, the James Webb telescope pictures recently, I don't know, it's fascinating. I, I think it's just amazing. And, and, and by the way, I don't think there's a single thing in that that, that, that that argues with the creation account. In fact, the more we learn about the origin of the universe, the more it appears that it just happened, which is weird and not scientific, <laughs> but it is very much according to scripture. But the James Webb Telescope, if you, if you look at the pictures and you think about the fact that, you know, how big it is, and, and, and again, in our church, we probably have differing views on how old the universe is, and I'm okay with that too. That's totally fine. But, but whatever it is, there's still this huge distances, and there's this appearance of millions and millions and millions of years past. And, and when you look at things about the universe, sometimes you feel very small. And I'm not sure that's entirely incorrect. <laughs> It's good for us sometimes to recognize this, as, as my daughter tells me, one of her professors used to say, we all go through a Copernican revolution in our own lives, where we realize the world, everything doesn't revolve around us. And so this is true, even the plan of God, it's important to understand the gospel and the plan. It doesn't, you are very small in one sense. Either. It's a cosmic plan about the redemption of everything for the glory of Christ. It's about the magnificent, gracious glory of God. And you are very small. And yet, the plan also puts Christ's work in us at the center of it. Somehow that plan cannot happen without us. Somehow that plan doesn't mean anything except through us. And that suddenly makes us very important. Here's our tension. <laughs> we are very small, and we are very important. It goes on. The plan is corporate and universal in nature. It's not just about saving you, it's about saving everything. They're very small. You do. The plan requires you and is best revealed in you. We are very important. <laughs> there is attention to it. God has done this weird thing where he says to us in no uncertain terms, you are not the center of the universe. That should not be in the tension anyway. You are not the center of the universe. But somehow God has made us so important in his plan of redeeming the entire world. And that is not a huge surprise given when he created the world and he created mankind, mankind had a really important spot. We represent God on the earth. It's as if we still do. We represent his glorious grace. First Peter says this amazing thing. Peter says this, concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with the greatest care trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would follow. Peter says, prophets have been trying to figure out the plan forever. Where is he coming? How is he going to come? And then he says, it was revealed to them. He says, even the prophets begin to understand. It wasn't about them. They were not serving themselves, but you. Well, now it's like, again, how do we just not get a big head in all this? He says, when they spoke of things that have now been told you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, but it goes further. He says the prophets begin to recognize that it, that it was coming later and you would be the people because you happen to be the people. But then he says this, not only are the prophets amazed, he says even angels 
long to look into these things. I, I think this is about that glorious grace of God, not really about you. I don't think the angels are that fascinated with you. I think they're fascinated with the work of Christ in you. This idea of redemption, this idea of gracious God, for whatever reason, notice God's plan doesn't involve redeeming eight fallen angels. It involves redeeming you. And so the angels are like, that's crazy. This God is, is weird. <laughs> it's, it's like even the angels, with everything they've seen about God, right? The angels sit around his throne and sing, holy, holy, holy. They've seen him create the entire universe. They've seen him do amazing things. They've seen the incarnation. They've seen the things he can do. They have so many things they could be amazed at. But it's like Peter is telling us that one thing the angels still are just perpetually amazed by, they still want to look into, is the redemptive process of Christ in you. That, to them, is his glory. That, to them, is what is to the praise of his glory. And you are necessary. If you get too big, let me remind you, the part of the reason you're necessary to that is because you were so messed up, the angels have a hard time believing that it could have happened. Yes. <laughs> and that's true. <laughs> but it's also true that the angels are impressed by it because you were so messed up, and God did such an amazing work in you. And you are now holy and blameless. Peter goes on at one point to say that when we aren't growing, when we aren't maturing, when we aren't revealing ourselves to be the children of God that Paul talked about, he said it's often because we've forgotten that we've been cleansed of our past sins. And it's amazing to me that even that phrase can be heard two different ways and both are true at once. You can forget that you've been cleansed of past sins if you forget you have past sins, right? You can say, I've always been great. It's just who I am. And that would be bad. You wouldn't grow. You wouldn't mature because you'd think you did it yourself. But it could also mean that you've forgotten you've been cleansed. And you spend all your time wallowing in your past sins. And you won't grow that way either. See, it's, it's the reality of both that is part of God's glorious grace, to the praise of his grace, that we were corrupted, depraved, messed up, and now we're holy and blameless. What does that mean? We're going to talk about that. But that's the plan, is as that, that God is revealing that to us. So how do you resolve the tension of all this? Well, in one sense, you don't. You accept that you are very, very small and somehow really important to this plan. And one way you can express that, which you could call a resolution, is that Christ is the center around which everything realigns, and Christ points the way to that realignment through you and me. Which is potentially a heavy responsibility and burden, but only, only if you forget everything we just said, that it is Christ working in you that points the way to that realignment, not you figuring out how to make yourself better. The weird thing about God's plan is at no point was it him saying to the people of God, get better, be better, do better, shape up. No. What God's plan has always involved is saying, recognize that you can't get better. You can't be better. You can't do because you're corrupt and trusting to work in you and through you. Because that will be the praise of my glory and not yours because you can't do it. There's a whole mix in here, isn't there, of self-esteem builders and self-esteem destroyers. And, and navigating that is part of understanding what it means to be human, 
and to be made whole. So that's the plan. It's complicated. It's cosmic. It's huge. It's amazing. And it all comes down to everything being united in Christ. And you are essential to it because God decided you were essential to it. Most churches believe in the value of small groups, but in Focus Church, we are so convinced that's where the discipleship happens that we put all of our resources, our training, and our assessment into the focus groups. And we believe that you can be part of a focus group from anywhere in the country. So if you'd like to join us, just email me at pastormac, M-A-C, underscore at mac.com. And I'd love to tell you how you can be part of it. Either way, I hope this has been encouragement to you, and we'll see you here again next week.